0: As with many of my first encounters, I met today's author in a dark room. It was during an audition for a workshop adaptation of the ancient poem Laila and Majnun*. Zaneb Zahra Saeed is a performance poet, producer, educator and curator. Since graduating from Brown University in 2014 with a degree in political science, science not silence, political science, Zaneb has been performing and facilitating workshops for school children, incarcerated women, trauma victims, as well as migrants and refugees from across the world. In 2015 she was the finalist in the National Australian Poetry Slam. In 2016 she co-founded Word Inc. launching Pakistan's first Poetry Slam as well as other grassroots programs To create safe spaces for creative expression. In January 2017, Zaneb decided to lay roots in Perth and joined Performing Lines WA as an associate producer. She is also a teaching artist at the Red Room Company and Said Poet Society. She is also a curator of Illuminate. Illuminate, You Plus Me for Humanity for CALD Communities in WA. She is also a humanitarian observer for the Immigration Detention Monitoring Program at the Australian Red Cross. Welcome, Zaneb.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Zaneb, you are truly a globetrotter.
1: <laughs> Why? <Wow. laughs>
0: <laughs> because, according to my Googling, yeah. <laughs> you have taught and performed in the US, yeah. UK, Yep. Europe, yep. South Asia, yep. the Middle East, yep. and Australia.
1: Yeah.
0: Why did you lay your roots in Perth? Did something special attract you to Perth?
1: Wow, that's a hard question. I feel like a lot of times I try to make plans in life, and mm. then life just makes plans for me. <laughs> and Perth was one such instance. I never, ever, ever thought I would find myself in Australia, let alone in Perth. Uh, But my parents moved here in 2009 and I was at boarding school and then I was at university and after I graduated, I was trying to figure out what to do next and I knew that they kind of wanted me closer to home and the US and Australia is quite a fair distance. And so I came here kind of kicking and pushing and was quite upset that I actually had to be here. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I first came here, I kind of scoped the area and was just like, oh actually Perth, huh, not so keen on Perth Uh, So when I moved here in 2014 I just stayed for a few months and then just decided that it really wasn't where I wanted to be right now and so went on tour for a few years and then about a year and a half ago, my family was still here so I came back and ironically they left <laughs> and so I found myself here and then I just got a job with performing lines and decided to kind of stay for a little while.
0: According to your online bi- biography, mm-hmm. why does your scholarship and poetry yep. focus on the Middle East and South Asia?
1: So I am from Pakistan originally and I did I lived in Pakistan till I was about 12 or 13. And then moved overseas with my dad's job. And growing up, it was very much about laying your roots somewhere. And so I had a really strong sense of home when I was growing up. And even when we lived abroad, it was always with the idea of we were always Pakistanis who were living abroad for a little while. And home was always Pakistan. It was a place that we would go back to. So my parents made sure that we had a really strong connection to home. And I kind of grew up in international communities, had the privilege of going to some of the best institutions in the world. So I always felt like I was a kind of catalyst between communities and conversation between cultures, between people, different ways of thinking. And so I always found myself in the role of a translator, so to speak, translator of experience and of culture and of history, of nostalgia Um, And so a lot of my writing, to be honest, initially was just a way for me to pen down experiences. And having moved around so much, I've moved house 17 times in like 25 years. So it's just, it's crazy, you know, like lived in, I don't know, five, six countries. So it's been quite an interesting journey so far. And so I never kind of wanted to forget the experiences. And that's where my writing journey began, And for me, a lot of it began with the sense of home because I felt uprooted in a lot of ways because my home was in Pakistan, but I was changing abroad. And was that making me less Pakistani or more Pakistani? And could I claim home in like Romania and Yemen and Wales and all these places I had lived and had loved? And so I started writing about Pakistan as home in a sense to just make sense of where my roots were. To begin with, Um, and I had a strong affinity with the culture and with the traditions of that place. And a lot of people that I came in connection with and met were people who were always very inquisitive and curious Mm -hmm. about that part of the world and didn't know much. And it was a time that was post 9 11, so there was a lot of just a lot of negative hype around it. And it was always heartening to see people interact with me and then have all of these preconceived ideas and for them to kind of shatter and then be like, oh, actually, we also had this ice cream stand when we were growing up that we loved and ate ice creams at. And I also looked for ladybugs in my grandmother's garden, you know, so those were universal human experiences that bound us together. And so I kind of fell into this space, that circumstance kind of shaped for me where it was to write about home as a way to not only root myself, but also be a bridge of communication between people and cultures so that's kind of how it happened yeah
0: you were saying that like Wales. so you've been oh my goodness yeah you certainly have traveled i'm curious to know like does going to different countries like the middle east and the language barrier yeah like did you learn arabic well well arabic that's a whole different because there's so many dialects of Arabic.
1: so I I mean I lived quite a privileged life so most of my education was in international schools which uh-huh. meant like language of communication was always English but because I am Pakistani and I am Muslim mm-hmm. there's a lot of overlap between Arabic and my language which is Thank Urdu um, and so every time that we did go to another country it was very important for us as a family to break outside of the expat or international bubble that most people find themselves in and so we actually would try to make active effort in learning the language of the country mm-hmm. and actually making friends with people who are local to the place because it just felt like that was the best way to get to know a country mm-hmm. and so yeah in all of the countries I've lived in we've we've always tried to learn the language and because when we were younger it was much easier to pick it up and so while we lived there our like Romanian or Arabic and all yeah. was quite <laughs> it was it was quite good in terms of just like it would allow us to communicate with just like the average person on the street. But I can't say that I have retained all of it. It does come back in moments when I'm back there or visiting, but to say that I'm proficient in any of those languages would be an exaggeration. Yes.
0: I also find Pakistan, a very interesting country. Like, because I'm, a, I'm a really lover of history, and see, it's very interesting the mix of history and Hollywood. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm about. I, I want to refer. There was a recent film that I saw with my dad this year. Um, oh, what's it called? It was, it was about. I thought, I'm not sure if it was called Government House. No, 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 no. I'm trying to think. It was about the um, the last of Vice regal of India. Um, Lord Mountainbound in yep. 1947. I'm not sure if you saw that film.
1: I haven't seen it, but I know him. <laughs>
0: but, but, yeah, yeah, but the creation of Pakistan in 1947. Yeah. And I find that history very interesting and how... And it's, it's a very interesting film. Go watch it.
1: What is it called? I can't,
0: that's the thing I'm trying to think. Uh, Lord Mountainbound, 1947 uh, film, has... Uh, the only person I can. The remember. viceroy. Yeah, the, vi- the Viceroy. Yeah, the my friend character.
1: just told me about it recently.
0: It's an interesting film because the director. It's an interesting film. I felt somewhat safe watching it because when you're watching a big Hollywood film, like yeah. especially dealing with a historic topic, you kind of think, well, obviously some bits didn't happen. They will have to yeah. stretch it artistically for sure to fit the the picture. Yeah, but. I hope you do watch the film soon, and I'd love to know your opinion on it because I just found it how you had these interesting plays. You had the uh, you had Lord Mountbatten, the obviously the British, and in the film, he it's interesting. You, you come away. He is basically being played the fool all along. He had no power whatsoever. Um, what? Yeah, no, no, sorry, no, no. Well, he did have power. Yes, sorry, he did have power, but he was he was sort of a puppet in the sense of. Churchill and... Oh, okay, the British. Okay, the British. I, thought, oh, okay. No, <laughs> I thought... Oh, right.
1: okay. I was like, well, wow, they orchestrated no, no, no. everything. <laughs>
0: yeah. But he himself was just... Yeah,
1: okay. Uh, like, just the know. man on the ground. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it was just interesting. And then you had, like, the character, you know... Well, not the character, the actual... Well, see, Hollywood, when they make big films, like Gandhi... Yeah. He's a real person. Yeah. But the... Oh, anyway, yeah. Like, his... You know, his frustration of how the the country tore apart, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I... <laughs> d- do you feel like... I don't know, like... I think we're sort of... We- well, in a weird way... Well, for the hell of it. Do you think a country such as that should have been separated? Or was it a matter of time? Or was it going to be a matter of time? I know it's a big question, and maybe I shouldn't ask Yeah, I it.
1: know. It's a... Uh... It's a conversation that happens almost daily in Pakistan. And you have people who have very different and extreme views. There's a whole segment of society that thinks we should have been a part of India and that the way forward was to be one whole. There's another that does not think like that at all. I come from a generation that is, I think, the last generation that still holds the scars of partition mm-hmm. uh, because our grandparents were the people who were actually the the leaders right. of the movement and were the people who witnessed it, were the people who sacrificed, were the people who went on the trains and left their homes and left everything for this promise of a different land and on both sides of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it becomes really hard to... Separate history from emotion right now within the generation, no matter how objective people try to be about it. For me, I've only ever known myself as a child of partition. You know, I've only ever known myself within that boundary. Um, And it's the only way I have identified in a lot of ways, which is not to say that there is a good or a bad in it, it just is the reality of the situation that I was born into. The promise of Pakistan and the reason for its creation was much more socioeconomic than it was religious. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was supposed to be a safe haven for all kinds of minorities that were being discriminated against. So not just the Muslims, but the Sikhs and any other minority groups within India because it, it just came to a point where the Mughal Empire, which had seen all of the glory and taken the subcontinent to such heights, was... On a decline, the British had kind of come in, but it was the the colonizer and had completely exploited a nation and disadvantaged some people and some people had retained power. And within the population, most of the Hindus were the people who had more power and were in charge. So as the British, it seemed like the British were pulling out, at that moment, the only likely successor seemed to be the hindus Mm -hmm. and so it put the muslims and the sikhs and all these minority groups with a huge concern because they felt like they wouldn't ever be able to rise up again in a lot of ways so pakistan kind of was born out of necessity at that time um and the founder of pakistan was actually a lawyer and Mm -hmm. he he had, he didn't actually want to go ahead with creating Pakistan initially. And the concept of Pakistan was um, thought of by a poet, Ilham Iqbal, who's like the greatest poet of the Indian subcontinent. And he was a dreamer. And he, he got Jinnah, who was the founder of Pakistan, involved and then took a lot of like coaxing and coercing into like really believing in, in this idea of this struggle. And then Jinnah himself... Believed so strongly in it eventually that he knew he was suffering from TB, tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And at that time, if the British had found out that he was suffering from that, they would have derailed the process of Pakistan being created. Right. So he actually kept his condition hidden from everyone. So his doctor was sworn to secrecy, and only he and his sister knew. And he died 13 months after Pakistan was created. So it was very much like a, it was people give their lives. For yeah. This country, you know, it was the largest mass migration of anywhere that's yeah. ever happened before, and so, it, I mean, it's a it's a nuanced topic. I mean, a lot of people are still alive today who have lost family members in the struggle, so it becomes really hard to just put an economic number to it, or you know, just like track progress in that kind of way. Mm. But yeah, I'm I'm I think I'm of the camp where I'm very patriotic in that kind of way, and for me, Pakistan is. There's no disputing the fact that it was created, but I also recognize that that's because I was born into that, mm-hmm. that moment in history where it was created, and perhaps I would have different feelings if I was born before the creation. But yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but no, that's kind of where we're at. It's murky. <laughs> I know it's early
0: days, but has Perth taught you or reminded you of anything? <laughs>
1: So much skepticism. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Perth has been... I've spent my whole life leaving places and I've spent my whole life moving. Before I kind of tried to stay in Perth, I I was in a different city every week for about two years. I've never lived in a country for more than four years. Mm. And so it's very natural and comfortable for me to move and to be constantly moving and... It means that mm. I hold on to certain things very strongly, but I 'm able to let go of certain things very easily and I think birth has birth has been confronting for me mm. in a lot of ways with with the slowness and with the idea of staying as opposed to leaving and to be comfortable with staying um, yes. and yeah Thinking of that. Um, and it's been. <laughs> I mean, in a in a very refreshing kind of way, because I think that offers you a lot of growth that is very personal and internal. And I think when you're constantly moving, unless you're actively involved in the process of like interrogating the self and interrogating the intention, I don't think you allow yourself that space. But when you're put in a space where there is just time and there is just actually open space and nature and beauty, um, and you have time to kind of just sit with yourself, you're confronted with... A lot of questions that you don't have time to answer otherwise. Um, So I think Perth for me in terms of like growth as a human um, has been huge. And I owe this city a lot for that. And even within my artistic practice, just with the idea of being okay with being patient, you know. And the, the process has been something that I've learned a lot in Perth. I've also realized that it is a terribly isolated city. Um Certainly is and cool. the people here just don't really know about the rest of the world, which kind of drives me a little crazy because my whole my whole world is global, you know, like yeah. I can't pinpoint it to one city anymore. I can't just put it in one location, just say Pakistan is home. No, like I my heart is like in people and places that are all over the world. Um and for me the world all of the world feels like home, and I find it really hard when people in birth become very territorial and aren't able to, like, step outside. Yeah. Um, it's just very bizarre to me, and I don't think I have found a way around it, to be honest. Yeah.
0: What is slam poetry? <laughs>
1: um... In easy words, slam poetry is just a competitive form of performance poetry or spoken word poetry. Mm. Um, so slam was kind of like this movement that was started in in the U.S. after like the 60s, 70s, into the 80s where the idea was to bring people together for poetry and because people don't necessarily take to the idea of just a poetry reading Um, The idea was to add a competitive element to it, pick judges from the audience who would judge poetry. And it kind of became this huge phenomenon Mm -hmm. that has taken the world by storm. And it's very inclusive. And a lot of disadvantaged marginalized communities are the ones who really have embraced this Mm -hmm. form of expression. Um, So especially in the U.S., the minority communities, anyone who's sort of disadvantaged it was just a way to speak of important social political concerns outside of the academic setting um, in a way in which people listened um, so the form kind of took on a very socio-political format and it's kind of been consistent throughout the world but it really was started off in the U.S. and to me it's just a reinvention of old forms of storytelling where we sat by a campfire and I told stories and told poetry. And that was a tradition that, I mean, the culture I belong to holds that tradition very strongly. And like, we have a very strong affinity to poetry. Um, So it just kind of felt like a reiteration of that old format of storytelling, but bringing it into the contemporary context a little bit more. So yeah, simply speaking, it's just a competitive form of performance poetry.
0: And it is a remarkable scene because I know you can YouTube slam poetry because there are some remarkable performances. I, I remember there was this lady from, yeah, I, I don't know actually she started in America, mm. but I remember this lady, she was from Colombia and in a performing in America, and she was talking about, well, her poem was about how her, I think, ex-boyfriend prided himself as a communist And that, so much so that he spent quite a bit of money on buying this um, edition of Karl Marx's, oh, that work that his case, I mean, the the, the Communist uh, communist Manifesto. And I remember, I was watching this, I forget her name, but oh my goodness, and she's talking about how, you know, coming from Colombia. Yeah. (laughs) My goodness, and how she was, you know, um, she was, you know, raped and uh, her mother... And she had to fight in a civil war. And, and yet she was creating this horrible, well, passionate, horrific image of her real life compared to her boyfriend who was, as I whistle, um, her boyfriend who was well-educated, thought himself to be a nitty-gritty man's uh, uh, people's person, a communist, where actual communism is for the masses, for the real yeah. people who... who I go through buckets of shit
1: every day no it's a powerful form it's a really powerful form That I mean there's a distinction between performance poetry and slam poetry which it shouldn't be but it's evolved and so I don't particularly consider myself a huge backer of slam poetry I always associate myself as a performance poet or a spoken word artist because now with like YouTube and and this entire like global philo- phenomena of like information being so easily accessible, a lot of the slam voice has turned into this like shouting, noise mm. kind of poetry, which, which to me is just like slam. Kind of sometimes adds noise to noise. And a poetry teacher of mine once said to me that you know words aren't meant to be slammed; they're meant to be elevated mm. and so for me that kind of captures the nuance quite beautifully where slam was meant to be just this competitive form of spoken word poetry but now it's kind of evolved into a lot of people thinking that you can get better points if you just shout more yeah. um, or if you swear more um, and so it kind of for me that doesn't sit so well because that's not how I write that's not the kind of space I occupy on a stage and so a lot of the YouTube and that's not to say that all slam poets are like that I know phenomenal slam poets who who don't ascribe to that um, and some of them are my very good friends and so it's just for me is I've just seen it as Australia's becoming more and more interested in slam poetry I've seen that because a lot of the really good poems are coming out of the U.S., which they listen to through through YouTube. Mm -hmm. There's now a slam voice, which is like a shouty voice. So, like, people just think that there's just one way to do slam poetry. And so, a lot of times when I go to poetry, like, emerging spaces that do performance poetry here, a lot of it seems like they think that, Angst and anger and shouting is the only way to kind of express those emotions, whereas poetry is a lot more subtle um, and nuanced. And I think that as that difference emerges, so certain people will realize that this actually isn't the way poetry is perhaps meant to be. There is, I mean, yes, you do need to raise your voice at some points, but for me, <laughs> for me, it just like doesn't. It's a disservice to the art and also like to the message that you're trying to convey so yeah there are instances where Islam is important and vital and that's why I started Pakistan Poetry Slam. but there's instances where I think it just adds more noise to noise and it's just uh, you know us talking about our first world problems what is a
0: quality that an artist should strive for humility mm.
1: yeah first and foremost Humility and sincerity. That's it. That's all you need.
0: <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's humility, that's a wonderful word. It's interesting. I just recently completed a two week theatre workshop with Strut Downs. And, but, uh, and we performed and we did a little, we, we performed two nights at the State Theatre Centre Studio Underground. Mm-hmm. Right? And basically, the, the main uh, workshop was about investi- investigating text and movement, that relationship. Um, with improvisation yeah. and it was led by Andrew Moorish and Humphrey Bauer. I've talked about this before in the last chapter and um, I'll, I'll talk about it again because I think it is quite really, really interesting when I was performing I definitely felt that there needs to be that I know, humility because you're being very conscious with the audience you're being conscious with the, the text or the performance piece or, or what. Yeah, it's just a funny, funny. I wish maybe more people were more I'm trying to find that. Conjugate the verb. Humble. Um, more humble. <laughs> more people be humble and take a big slice of humble pie and.
1: I mean, it just it just humility comes from a place of understanding your place. So, like, it for me a lot of a lot of times. Well, I believe very strongly that artists. True artists are divinely inspired and they're vessels. So how if you're a vessel, if your art is divinely inspired, then it's, it's a way for the divine inspiration to go through you and then reach out to someone else. So you're just a vessel. Mm. You're, you're not the end-all, be-all. And that, for me, is a very humbling experience that I'm just a vessel mm. uh, for art to get to other people. And so I think when you, when you think of it in that way, there's nothing else but humility you can have because there's no ego there, there's no self there. You're just a vessel.
0: From all your travels, is there a reoccurring lesson, a lesson that has been tried and tested in many countries? I was just, the reason when I was writing that question, I think, have you been to Africa?
1: No, I haven't. Ah, I know. <coughs> the
0: one place I haven't, one place. well I haven't either. Yeah. That's the um, one
1: continent I haven't been to.
0: Is there some sort of I, I I'm really wary of asking this question of you, but is there some sort of cohe I was trying I was I was going for a walk today and I was and I was running through my questions and speech, you know, getting prepared and, and what have you. And I was trying to think of the word, is there some sort of tra- tra- trans or pan? Is there a universal I don't know thing that
1: connects everyone? That connects everyone. Yeah, I love
0: Yes.
1: People respond, want to respond to hate with love. That's what they want to do. That's what resonates with them. Because hate is divisive. It does not build. Uh, but love does. And love takes on many forms. And it's not a cliche love between two people. I'm talking about love that is selfless and that is giving and that is generous. And people, like, their primal nature is to give and to exist in community and to... To mend instead of break. That is the instinctive reaction that most people have to almost any situation. And love is more resilient than hate can ever be. And I think that that's a human, like, that's a universal human value that spans across not just the world, but across generations and centuries. And from the beginning, it has been there from the beginning of time and will be there to the end of time because it's the only thing that nurtures. If you don't have love, there's there's nothing that grows. And so I think that the whatever mechanisms are there in the world that are employing hate, it is because they understand the power of love and they understand that they can't profit from love. Um, they can only profit from exploitation that arises from hate. And that, I mean, it can be... You can spread that across to any form you can talk about like deforestation, climate change, they're all a form of hate. Like we're we're at at arms with the earth. We're we're hating, you know, each other. And when you take the hate out, things only grow and you take care of things. And so I think that it's hate is something that's taught, but love is also even though it's something innate within us, it is something that takes time and needs to be cultivated and needs to be invested in and I really, I really believe that people, I really, really do believe the more I travel that people are more connected than they are not. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just have to find those points of connection. And they're not hard to find, you know, because everyone has this experience of being a human being in this world. So there are things that bind us automatically. And so, yeah, so that's just like one important lesson that I try to carry with me always. And it's. It's something that I try to put into everything I do. Whether it's art I create or art I help to create or spaces I occupy or people I interact with. Yeah, I think that's like the one big thing. Even though it sounds a bit cliche.
0: No, I think it's true. And would you then also say that fear is born from ignorance? Like the the fears of the unknown?
1: A lot of times, yeah. I think... I mean, we live in a very globalized world. We know a lot about the world around us in a very superficial way, like a bomb goes off somewhere and I know about it and a cyclone happens somewhere else and I know about it. But I think we know very little about the worlds within us. We know that we don't actually actively interrogate our own selves. And I think that is where the disconnect is because you can't other someone Unless you don't know your own self because the there is no other in a way because we are all deeply connected in that human level and unless you know your own humanity you cannot see it in someone else and that's how you begin to other the other person mm-hmm. and I think we need the way our world is going we're moving even further away from this interrogation of self we're surrounded by selfies and exhibitionism and filters that allow us to become whoever we are and we become so far removed from our cores we forget our essence and then how can you see that essence in someone else you know and so I think there's a lot of not just ignorance of the other but ignorance of the self and unless we can try to focus on that we're not going to be able to dispel the ignorance of the other because it's that whole idea of Before changing the world, you must change yourself. So it begins with one individual um, on a very micro level. Uh, But that's hard work, and we're unwilling to do that work right now.
0: Do you think we're too busy? Because it's interesting how you brought up social media. Do you feel like we're too busy painting uh, portraits for people to see when in actual fact... Leah, like you said, we are, we're, we're not actually, you know, looking after ourselves, not actually cleaning, we, the brush, who is painting that picture yeah. for social media.
1: 100%. Oh, like, everything is a form of exhibitionism. A few months ago, I, like, deleted all my social media as, like, a cleanse. Also, like, I'm, I'm a writer. I love being in isolation. And so I just kind of wanted to, like, push the world out for a little while. And I had so much time Mm. to just like, I've never had that much time to just sit with myself and be like, all right, okay, actually that's not working or that's not working or that's not good. Or why did you react that way? Or, you know, like you just respond automatically because everything is so fast. You just respond without thinking and you do that with your own self now. And so it was so interesting for me that I, I just like came out of those two months being like, oh my God, I have so much work to do on myself. Yeah. And it was really, I I didn't do anything. I didn't, like, enroll in, like, a self-knowledge course or anything. It was literally just that time I had to not be concerned about someone else's life or how someone was perceiving me to be or how I was seeing their situation and comparing it to mine or not. It was just, like, me by myself in birth, like... <laughs> You know, enjoying what I do, walking to work observing the leaves, whatever it is actually looking at the people walking on the street who actually weren't looking at me because they were all looking down on their phones but like it was it was just so fascinating because it was all I needed was the time and the space to do that and all of that just came and we've just completely taken all of that time and space out of our lives, we've made ourselves so busy and I'm very guilty of it and that's why I speak of it is because I'm one of those people where like I've made myself so busy that like from the moment I get up in the morning to the moment I go to bed at night, it's just like go, go, go and there's just like no time to stop and you just like kind of go to bed exhausted and then like you wake up the next morning and like oh shit, I didn't sleep enough um and then go, go, go again, so so yeah, there's, there's an issue here that we're like we're heading towards a t- train crash
0: yeah That's- Sorry, I'm just, just processing That is so... It is scary in a way because I was just familiar when I'm walking, we are, I'd like to um, note that we are recording today at the King Street Art Center. And it was interesting because when I was walking here today, I took some pictures for this color image and then I just sat down and I was just, you know, and I looked at my phone and the thing with me is I'm quite cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a bit cheap and poor. but, um, I don't have any mobile internet or, you know, data or whatnot, so I, I don't Google or anything. I, I just have, I, I do have an iPhone 4 as thingy, <laughs> but I was just checking the time and, you know, I was just like, okay, so I've got 10 minutes just to do nothing with it. And I just sat, and it's so funny watching people, you know, on their mobile phones, walking so closed and so shut off and, but then interspersed with that, you did have, like I saw rushing these office workers with briefcase and they're like a pack of... Yeah. I was a pack of walls. But they're <laughs> like, this, like a herd of geese, you know, of birds flocking that way. And, and just sitting, I was like, wow. Yeah, people are... I don't know, I, I, I think I'm addicted myself. I'm addicted to being busy. Yeah. Like my favourite thing is I, at home I've got like this big desk diary and I write... you know. Well, in a, yeah, I'm, not in an, an name or way, but I, I write stuff so I don't forget to do today. Today, I'm, yeah, to do to and I just love ticking yeah, everyone get off
1: the to list. Yeah,
0: yeah, I just that's one of my guilty pleasures.
1: Yeah, I just recently decided to because I actually I, I like work here, but then I run Pakistan Poetry Slam and I do a lot of other things in my outside world, so I actually don't have to, I like work seven days a week. And so the past one month, I've actively tried to pull out of things cause I got really sick. And so it was just, for me, it was just like, uh, okay, you gotta stop now before you burn out situation. And just like, I was talking to my mom yesterday cause she's visiting and I came home from work at like 6.30 and I like, didn't do anything. For like yeah. the rest of the evening, and uh, I went for a walk with my friend. And like, I came back home, and I was like, Whoa, this is what normal people do! <laughs> it feels so good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like healthy and normal. And it's, but as I said, it's an active effort.
0: With a, with a, sorry, I've got to change it now. With a, see, I don't know, it's really funny. When I listen back to this, I live, I leave these, I like leaving these bits in. Like, I make, I don't know, because I'm a big, podcast devourer yeah. and you know he and it's very interesting this podcast series has always been fighting with the thing of trying to be a polished product yeah and not trying to be a polished product and trying to be you know very forward in a sense very open very you know yeah because no, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a journalist and I'm, I'm <laughs> sure I, I have not studied journalism
1: I'm happy to have chats
0: <laughs> well, it's funny because I notice I notice a lot of people. and I think it's getting a bit tired now. Like, like in interviews, like they see, like when I approach people to do these sort of things, I, I always try my best to say, "Oh, would you like to have a conversation?" I don't like using the word interview. And you know, I pick that a lot from a lot of American old journalists like Charlie Rose and, and um, or Orson Wells and um, yeah, people like that. Sorry, I'm I'm digressing. That's one of the things I do, I digress. I'm happy to hear. With a degree in political science...
1: Oh, I knew this was coming.
0: Do you have any constructive feedback for Australia's government?
1: Jesus Christ! (laughs) There's a reason I love political science behind?
0: Well, how can you study in the first place?
1: To be honest, I never thought I would be someone who would work in the arts.
0: Yeah.
1: I was always like going to be a doctor or like in the government or... Because I, I wanted to make change, whether that was within me or within the world. And because I traveled so much, the, the most natural fit seemed to be in the government and especially maybe like in the foreign service because I mm. thought that's the best way I could serve my country. Um, because I do care very deeply about Pakistan. Um, and I felt like as, you know, like a well-educated Muslim Pakistani woman in the world, like there was a lot of change I could make. And, and so that's sort of like where my line of thinking was at. And yeah, so I, well, I went to university and I've always, I've been writing for as long as I can remember. I got very involved in poetry at university and particularly performance poetry and then while I was there I was also I've always been engaged in a lot of humanitarian projects and a lot of humanitarian work so that's kind of where my heart was like foreign service humanitarian work it's the only place I kind of really looked um, and so I was studying poetry a lot and my parents are Pakistani obviously so they were like you can't go to Brown and come up with a degree in poetry you need something more like legit yeah. And I was already st- doing a lot of political science courses. And so I was just like, oh, it seems fairly natural for me to study political science. And my thesis was like a hundred page political poem. So like it all kind of comes together, you know, because my poetry was very political at that time and it's moved mm. on from that recently. But for, for maybe like the first five years of my poetry career, I just wrote political poetry. And so that kind of was the natural kind of way to go. And then when I came to Australia, it just, no one knew about Brown. No one cared about Brown, even Mm -hmm. though it was, like, one of the best universities in the world. Mm -hmm. Like, I could have gotten a job at the drop of a hat Mm -hmm. anywhere else. But in Australia, no one seemed to care. There was very little within, like, the political arena that I kind of wanted to get involved in. Uh, There was very little humanitarian work so I took six months off just to finish a book I was writing which was like an adaptation of my thesis and I took those six months off and then people started approaching me to like perform poetry and I just kind of st- got into touring and all of a sudden all these other opportunities came up with poetry and like the intersection of like art and humanitarian work. So that kind of was my segue into the art and then performing lines came Mm -hmm. along and it kind of just became, well, it was, I mean, it was a lot of soul searching for me because I had positioned myself to always be like someone who was like a humanitarian or like in the foreign service or something of that sort. And I still retained that through like my work with the Red Cross and Mm -hmm. a lot of that, but I realized that a lot of the other work and because I was, Curating a lot of events like putting up a lot of shows that like were bridging people together and so I realized that a lot of my work was actually in like creating and activating spaces to be safe for people Mm -hmm. and for creative expression to thrive in those spaces and for for these like political and humanitarian causes to be championed through the arts and so it kind of seemed apparent that in order for the next step to come along I had to get together a skill set that will allow me to do that better and more efficiently and maybe on like a larger scale than just like myself. And that's where kind of Performing Lines, when it came along, it kind of gave me this exposure into the arts world in Australia that, was, that seemed very conservative and small to someone who came from the outside and also really hard to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and Performing Lines just kind of helped me break into that space. And allowed me to kind of occupy it and like take my skill set onto a whole nother level. And I do realize I totally did not answer your question about the state of the Australian no. government, but I think it has a lot to do with what I've said before. Australia just thinks it's so isolated from the rest of the world where it's not like we're a part of a global world and you have to listen to yourself and like know where your pulse is at. And I think Australia actually doesn't know where its pulse is or the people know where the pulse is but the politicians are so removed from the land they don't know where the pulse of australia is so how can you govern a nation that you don't even know where the pulse is you know and so so i think australia has a lot of work to do in terms of just like becoming aware of who they really are and to be accepting and receptive of the change and of the migration and of the evolving nature of the communities because it's not, no longer a white community. Yeah, It's never been, but even now more so, Like it's so multicultural that yeah. like, to, to actually not have that reflected within every segment of society, I think is a disservice to your own intelligence because then you're actually whitewashing everything that is not really whitewashed so yeah i think there's australia just has a lot of learning to do mm. and like what well, humility is not just like on a stage but it's in public office and humility comes with like a lot of listening and active listening and that's not really happening everyone wants their two cents you know okay you're pauline Hansens and you're oh. what not everyone <laughs> has an opinion yeah. and everyone wants to say something but no one actually wants to sit and listen um, because listening allows you to assume a position of humility and to accept that you may not know. But but like my ideas around all of this are very philosophical right now because I feel like we're just so far away from any tangible steps. We just need to like get our frame of thinking correct first before we can even take any
0: steps. Um, and it's really so sad. Like I'd imagine if you if you or I were to ask. Wow, I love that the pulse. If you were to ask, like any politician, where's the pulse, and, <laughs> that, and like like at a drop of the hat, I, I bet some of them will definitely say the pulse. This is the pulse. This is where yeah. the pulse is. This is where it is. It's like no, no, no. Where's the pulse, and, and my goodness, you're so right. I wish more people were to listen. There's... Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry, I'm just getting. I feel like my <laughs> blood pressure is slowly rising, and and as we speak, and. And hopefully this podcast will stand the test of time. And let this podcast <laughs> be a true um, record of our history and time right now. Because as you may or may not know, we are dealing with well, uh, marriage equality yeah. at this present moment. We're also dealing with um, a small majority, well not a small majority, but a considerable number of politicians, members of federal parliament uh, can no longer or is not maybe not be able to serve anymore because of their citizenship status, which I find oh, I find that's crazy. Consci- that constitution, when that first like when it first started with the Greens, yeah. uh, Scott Ludlam, yeah. when that started the ball rolling, I thought, cold mill, well, well, I was going to say cold, old-fashioned, mm-hmm. but old people wrote that bloody law 100, 117 <laughs> years ago, 116 years ago. I find that's ridiculous. How. You cannot have any foreign citizenships. And I find Australia is, apart from America, which disqualifies you from being the president. You have to be born there. But I think only Australia is... I could be wrong to say, but um, Australia is one of the very few countries where you can only be an Australian citizen to serve in parliament.
1: Uh, Pakistan has the same. Ah, I mean, if, on one level it does make sense to me because what interest are you serving then, right? Each government will want you to serve your own interests and mm-hmm. if you have dual citizenship that automatically s- splits your loyalty and the government doesn't want split loyalty obviously, it wants complete loyalty. So I, I do understand that, but it just depends on how you position yourself in the world. Like we want to say we're very global, but then at the same time we don't want to be global, we want to be territorial, you know. We're a world of nation states. There's a lot of yeah. Contradictions and discrepancy in the world. It's just like you can unpick it to the end of time.
0: Oh, but you know what's fascinating? I was watching, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it to you now. I was watching this documentary series that was done, I think, this year, the ABC did, of how this finance guy, he basically interviewed, you know, like you know, previous, um, like John Howard, finance ministers, treasurers, whatnot, and it was basically a documentary, a mini-series about the financial history of Australia. it's a very interesting history because apparently for three years in a row, in, I think it's like 1897, so, you know, 100 plus years ago, Melbourne was the richest, the richest city on the planet.
1: Whoa, really? Yeah,
0: the richest city on the planet. Because 1897. Seven, and I think for three years, or two years. It was the richest city on the planet and... Statistically, at that time, yeah, it had a massive influx of trade from all over the world. I think 60% of its population were foreigners. It had yeah, a lot of people from, strange enough, Germany, China, um, the, the UK, obviously. It's quite a metropolis. Yeah, I think yeah, 60% of the population were in Melbourne, I think the city, uh, were not born in Australia. Oh, wow. But but it's just that. But as soon as there's this infamous incident where a Chinese trading ship wanted to dock... I think it's called the Arya Incident or something, rather, wanted to dock, wanted to port in Melbourne. But there was this um, quite a bigoted portmaster did not want this boat to dock in Melbourne. So then this poor Chinese boat, and it needed to dock. There was an emergency or something. Emergency, I think. And this poor boat... Went up, went up north and went to Sydney. But for some, we, yeah. Ever since, as soon as Australia became very nationalistic, um, going into the new century and um, and sort of formed the federation, we lost our wealth. Basically, I think that's what the document, oh, wow. the documentary yeah. said. At the end, as soon as we started becoming nationalistic, we started employing uh, policies that. We wanted to separate ourselves from the British Empire, and, and but in saying that we don't want anyone else in, it's just yeah. us. We we started all the the money started to go away because of foreign investment. Yeah, and ever makes since sense. then we're trying to catch up. Catch up again.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, inclusivity is the way, not exclusivity.
0: <laughs> Why do you practice art?
1: Why do I practice art? Because mm. I can't live without it. I don't know any other way. I just, I don't know what the answer. It's yeah, yeah. I um, it, yeah. I don't know. It's my sustenance. It's
0: it's one of those questions because I'm exactly the same thing. When I remember I was talking to someone, why do you perform, Ryan? Right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck's, I, I, I don't know yeah. why I do it. Yeah, just for me, it just makes sense. Yeah. It just yeah makes yeah. logic, and I can't do anything else. It's who I am.
1: yeah, yeah, I just have always... I mean, I, I feel very lucky because I've always been able to do whatever I've loved doing and it's always, it's always had some kind of benefit to someone larger than myself. I feel like art sometimes can be self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to practice art that is self-indulgent. And so I practice art too because it's the only, it's the only way I know how to occupy meaningful space in the world Mm. Um, and i think my art tries to give back to other people and that's meaning for me yeah
0: what should an artist be careful of
1: the spotlight Mm. the ego (laughs)
0: yeah
1: i think it just goes back to my answer before like when you realize that you're a vessel then very little can derail your process Uh, But when, especially when fame comes your way, when recognition comes your way, it can alter your intention. And I think it's always important to go back and interrogate your intention and be sincere in your effort, whatever that is. As long as you are very sincere and clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it, then there's truth to it. There's authenticity to it. I think the worst kind of artist is an inauthentic artist because then you're being, you're betraying yourself and you're betraying the audience you know, you're betraying the people who are witnessing your art even if it's like crap authenticity I don't care, but I like and an audience can tell when you're being inauthentic like they're not dumb, they're very very smart and they can feel that and so I think that it's just very very important to be Cautionary of the spotlight and of recognition because that does alter your true and first intention I think and unless you can keep going back to it it doesn't mean your intention doesn't change along the process sure it does but as long as you can keep it to be authentic to whatever that is true to you I think you're you're good but once it starts to become inauthentic I think and becomes corrupted I think that's where you, you miss out on, on actually the full benefit of your art to yourself and to others.
0: In your opinion, yeah, what is performing lines?
1: You? <laughs> Do you want me to tell you our mission statement? What? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what it is for me. Mm. I yeah. mean, performing lines is many different things for many different people. Different things for funders and different things for artists and different things... For theater companies, uh, but for me I think it's it 's a space to grow and it's it 's a community of people who are really invested in nurturing and in empowering mm-hmm. voices. They actually walk the walk um, instead of just talking about it and I think for me it 's just been it 's been such a beautiful experience to to come to Australia and and have all these credentials behind me, but feel like Australia just wasn't ready and willing to open itself up Mm -hmm. and allow me to offer what I could to it. And then for performing lines to come in, and they didn't know me at all, but they were committed to investing in the growth of someone else who could be a producer Mm -hmm. without any plans for themselves, right? Like, I feel like this whole journey of them hiring me was really for my growth and for the growth of the industry. And so they're, they're a company of people who, who think outside of themselves, which is what I really love about them and which is why I joined them because... And I didn't understand the full extent of it mm-hmm. when I had just known them. And the more I the more I know them, the more I understand how the company works, the more I see that they're actually very selfless in the way that they give of themselves they're very very quick to nurture and to help other people grow and to really like all of the artists that they try to work with they're always looking for like how can what are the better opportunities out there, out there for the artists and maybe they include performing lines in it or maybe they don't but they don't think of themselves within the equation, you know. They think of, like, what is best for the industry, for the art, for the artists. And and that is how you get growth and longevity within an industry and within a community when you have people who are working towards a larger purpose. And I think performing Nines does work towards a larger purpose in a lot of ways. And I just feel extremely fortunate and grateful to just be a part of the community. And, I mean, the people I work with, Rachel and Fiona and Cecile, like, and Tom, um, like just our office is a, it's a blast and it's awesome, you know, and the Sydney team is absolutely amazing. So it's just, it's very important for me to do, I only do things that I love doing. And if it's a job that I don't love, I quit. Like for me, it's just, I have the privilege of being able to quit when mm-hmm. I don't like something. And so there is no way in hell I would have ever stuck to like a nine to five
0: <laughs> job, like four
1: days a week when I have so much else going on unless I absolutely loved it Mm. Um, so Mm. it's really infectious to be around these women who are so invested in my growth so yeah I just feel incredibly privileged to be a part of Performing Lines so for me that's what Performing Lines is you know Mm. a community of people who are working towards something larger than themselves
0: I wrote this down I'm not sure whether or not to so I've got two, two questions to go Oh, wow, um, really, okay. It's already been an hour.
1: Oh, shit. Yeah, time
0: is actually fine.
1: <laughs> Has um, it?
0: <laughs> in, in, in terms of performing lines, W A and you being an associate producer, what performance, if I, had a, if I was going to pitch a show to you or something, How? what type of performance would you like to be an advocate for? What type of works?
1: That pushes the boundaries a little bit. Hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be in terms of form. It can be in terms of forms of thinking um, of ideas. My particular interest, not because I'm from a diverse background, but <laughs> I tend to become the poster child for diversity it's something that, that really, my particular interest is just try to figure out the most meaningful ways to live and express and be and create an art that does that that allows me to Sit with those questions, to explore those questions, to question those questions, to stretch those questions. That's the kind of work that I'm interested in, that I'm invested in. So, yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> I guess.
0: <laughs> now I have to close the chapter. We're, 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 we're done now. But, as I always say, this but before we go, now I'm not sure if you have officially agreed to this, but anyway, isn't it? <laughs> The catch with this podcast series oh, wow. is that in the year 2027, I will do my utmost best to that try and contact... a really
1: long way away.
0: It is. To, to contact all my previous guests to see if they'll be interested in revisiting their interview and to interview them again. Oh, wow. In the year 2027. That's oh, to do this, so I'm like interesting... 10 years later. Yeah, 10 years later. How
1: old will I be? Very old. Now. No. <laughs> wouldn't be that old <laughs> if I am still alive.
0: Oh, I'm so... You know, because actually I kind of thought... I, have, I shouldn't say this, but I have a thought like... I have a dish and I'm going to audition, you know, some you know, people who are, yeah. who are, you know, old. And I'm thinking myself, what happens if they die? Yeah. And then I think, do I do like a special memorial <laughs> episode? Or I'm to I mean,
1: it could be young people, you never know.
0: Yeah, well, luckily a lot of... A majority of them have been youthful. Uh, emerging artists. Okay. But, but you still but, have
1: no guarantee.
0: Yeah, well, I could die. And I was yeah. Thinking,
1: yeah. what happens... If what I happens... Die? Yeah, we want and the I recordings. Thinking,
0: yeah. And I was hoping what I'd do, I'd find... If I'm on my deathbed, like, I'd find a success <laughs> to take on this mantle to make Maybe sure... Maybe you can
1: leave, thing. like, a treasure map for someone <laughs> to, like, go find. <laughs> um...
0: So Zineb, hopefully... I don't know if
1: I want to revisit this in 10 years, I'd be like, what bullshit was I talking? <coughs> oh,
0: no. I, was, I was just to say, I, I'd like to re- just revisit you and see yeah.
1: where you are. Oh, wow, okay.
0: So Hopefully,
1: Zineb... <laughs> moving on from performing nights, hopefully yeah. not in Perth.
0: <laughs> Wherever it may be, in the end, 2020s, I hopefully got up, hopefully I'm alive. Yeah. If I died before then, oh god, that's going to be horrible. Um... So in the year 2027, and when I have you on the podcast again, don't know where, hopefully in a much more mobile studio that I've contracted, gotten, I've got more money and we both have a microphone each and there's okay. a proper person yeah. doing editing and producing all this. What would you like to plug?
1: What would I like to plug?
0: In the year 2027. For
1: like the world, myself? Yeah, what?
0: anything, can could be anything. So when I come and see you yeah. in twenty twenty, I keep repeating that. I just like that. It's twenty twenty seven. It could be literally, could be a like buyer, a question. Oh. oh, but but it could be that too. Something philosophical.
1: Oh man, you need to give me more time to think about Sorry,
0: this. I remember, <laughs> and I don't but I like keeping this. Oh wow, what
1: would I like to plug, man? Don't even know where I want to be in 2027. I haven't even thought that far. Um, hoping there will be no more Trump. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh uh,
1: man, this is so
0: hard. I find it interesting how when I ask this question to some, you know, some artists like planning for the future. And I, and I agree. I totally understand that. It's it's really hard to plan for the future where you do live in this sort of lifestyle of of casual work, part time work. If you're lucky to get a full-time position, you know, in a company of sort, but then that company might fold, and then you have to start again. You do live this sort of vagabond, so sort we're of like vagabond, sort of like gypsy yeah. existence, yeah. where you just keep on traveling, you keep yeah. on moving.
1: I mean, I think the only the reason I have trouble answering that question is mm-hmm. because obviously everyone has some plans, mm-hmm. but I do believe that life makes plans for you. And if you make plans for yourself, sometimes sometimes you lock yourself into lack of possibility and don't allow yourself to explore. So I like to only plan like a year or two into whatever and then kind of leave the rest to however life comes about because my life has just been so unpredictable and I plan one thing and the opposite thing happens but the one thing that i i would hope i would be able to sustain for the rest of my life is that i hope i can keep doing what i only the things that i love doing that like serve meaning to the communities that i'm a part of that's the kind of work that i cuz you never know circumstances may like you know hold you down and you may have to like do things that you actually don't particularly enjoy doing just because it's kind of necessity. Mm. But I'm really hoping that life doesn't do that to me. And I'd hope that I wouldn't be jaded by, because a lot of the work and the spaces that I exist in are hard spaces to exist in, you know? Like I exist in spaces that make me work with like people who have a lot of trauma, Mm. migrants, refugees. Even these conversations around diversity, people who are disadvantaged. Um, and I can leave you quite jaded in a lot of ways. Um, I think for me, it's, it would always be something more philosophical than a tangible, yeah. oh, I hope I have a book or yeah. oh, I hope I have a show or whatever. I just hope that whatever I do, I can just like keep speaking truth, whatever that truth may be, with sincerity and authenticity and just do what I love doing. And I think if I can live a life like that whether that's in five years or 10 years or 40 years or I don't know a year Mm -hmm. I think then I will know that I have lived well but yeah I think yeah that's that's my life
0: (laughs) well thank you very much
1: thanks for having me I have no idea what this conversation was all about it was just a rant
0: (laughs) this conversation will hopefully let
1: it be noted that it is a Thursday (laughs) afternoon
0: night but this happened.
1: We're waiting happened. for spring. <laughs> spring hasn't come yet.
0: <laughs> That's it. We're just waiting for spring. <laughs> we're waiting for spring. Well, thank you, Zane. Thank you so much.